Proverbs chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be reading the entirety of the chapter, beginning in verse 1. Uh, so if you are physically able, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word? Uh, follow along as I read aloud Proverbs chapter 7. This is what the word of God says. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him. Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. And today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, Pastor Brad preached from Proverbs chapter 5, explaining to us the truth about sexual sin. But we didn't just look at sexual sin last week, but really, sexuality as a whole, as God designed it, as he intended it for his glory and our good. And it's in that light that we looked at just how skewed sexual sin is and how different it is from God's good design. The topic that is being addressed last week and this week is certainly worth thinking through, praying through, and considering, and we see that from the text we just read in Proverbs chapter 7. Now, I'm sure that in a room this size, in a crowd this size, in a church this size, we have varying degrees of familiarity with the Bible in our church family. And although we spent time in Proverbs, we haven't really done like a character study, per se, of Solomon himself. So you may be 
blissfully unaware of the unbelievable irony that comes with reading wisdom with regards to sexual purity from a man whom had, shall we say, quite away with the ladies. And for that, I want to show you from that from Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 11. So keep your finger in Proverbs 7 and go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Well, there you had it. Uh, Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. To At least to his credit, he did not discriminate. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Now, you've got to take out all ten fingers and all ten toes. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? A little too ironic, right? I mean, this is like really ironic that this would be the dude who would be penning Proverbs chapter 7, telling us about the wisdom that we need from God's holy word on how to maintain sexual purity. Like, why doesn't he follow his own advice? Yep, physician, heal thyself, right? Why doesn't he follow his own words of wisdom as he pens them to his son and for all of us to read for all of eternity? Well, the most likely answer is that perhaps Solomon penned Proverbs later in life. And so he's sharing wisdom, yes, godly wisdom, but still wisdom that he learned the proverbial hard way. Wisdom that he learned by not applying these words. And now that he sees the results of it, he is emphatically pleading with his son to pay attention to what he is saying so that he wouldn't repeat his foolishness. And that's why we're spending two weeks looking at wisdom from the book of Proverbs concerning sexual sin. We want to glean from Solomon so that perhaps we would not be like Solomon, uh, who has much wisdom to offer to us in this arena because he learned the hard way of the high cost and heavy consequences that come with this and all sexual sin. Which brings us to our first point. Uh, How do you stay pure? Uh, Here's one way. You need to remember the high cost and heavy consequences that come with all sexual sin. Uh, We will be going back to 1 Kings 11, but in your outline is Proverbs 7, verses 21 and following. The word says this. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her. Now, look at the word pictures that Solomon paints. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. 
Uh, These word pictures are painted intentionally by God, by Solomon, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things so that we would understand just how serious sexual sin is. It doesn't say just like an ox who missed a meal that day and was kind of cranky. No, that's not what it says. As an ox goes to the slaughter, right? As a bird before it, uh, or as a bird rushes into a trap, a snare, uh, he does not know it will cost him his life. Here's Solomon trying to emphatically tell his son and all of us about the high price and high cost of sexual sin. Uh, Consider, as I put in your outline, the possible physical cost to you and others of sexual sin, of sexual promiscuity, Uh, the physical cost and the, 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 the consequences of us being careless with our bodies, not applying the word of God, the numerous sexually transmitted diseases that are sometimes with people for life, even after they've repented and they're walking with the Lord. That's the thing with sin and particularly sexual sin. No sin is too far for the hand of God to reach and forgive. No person is too far down the road of sexual degradation to be redeemed and to be plucked out of the pit, to be released from that bondage. However, many times the consequences remain. And even after somebody's walking with the Lord for a long time, there's still a consequence, oftentimes a physical consequence that they have to live with for life. And they're going to heaven, and they're going to see us, and they're going to see me there, and I'm going to see them there, and that's great. But there's still a penalty that is within them because of the choices that they made. Why? Because we need to remember the high cost, the high consequence of sexual sin. There's a mental cost. Uh, A few weeks ago, two weeks ago, in fact, my computer crashed. After, I don't know, five years or something, it crashed. Then it rallied, right? It's kind of like, and then it actually really died. So, like a person. It was really weird. So it crashed. We got it fixed. It rallied for like a day. And then it just really, really, really died. And so now all of a sudden, now I have a new laptop and all is well. That doesn't happen with our minds. We can't reset our minds to factory default settings. Again, the Lord redeems, the Lord forgives. But friends, there are memories that stick with us for life. There are memories that stick with us that we wish weren't with us. And we know the Lord has forgiven us. We could be walking with the Lord, but there's still a cost that comes with sexual sin. That's not going to cost us our eternal destiny. Not at all. That's secure in Christ. But we still live with that consequence of sexual sin. And the mental cost is high. We recall experiences we wish we could forget. There's an emotional cost that comes with uh, any addiction to any life-dominating sin, especially one that is sexual in nature. Uh, For many, there's a professional cost of perhaps losing a job or even respect in one's field because of sexual choices they've made. And finally, there's a relational cost of perhaps losing credibility with those you care about the most. So look at 1 Kings 11, because I want to call to your attention uh, one other thing. 1 Kings, back to chapter 11. Look at verse 5. Excuse me, look at verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Skip down to verse 6. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the the Lord as David his father had done. 
And we read those verses and we're reminded perhaps of a relational cost that could come as a result of careless living, particularly in the area of sexual sin. We read that verse and we, especially dads, are reminded that the stakes are incredibly high. Now, you perhaps will recall when I preached on parenting back in June that I said and still hold to that parents are not responsible for the sins of their children. Every single one of us will stand before the Lord individually and not be able to point to anyone else and cast blame. We stand before the Lord individually and by ourselves. However, in most cases, parents are very influential on their kids, and that influence comes more from their walking than it does from their talking. And the Bible apparently says there's at least some connection, most likely by way of influence, by way of example, between Solomon's sin and that of his father David, particularly with Bathsheba. So the Bible makes that connection saying he's, he, he's acting this way and he's like his dad. And you see Solomon writing with this passionate writing, uh, these passionate words saying several times over and over again, my son, listen to me. My son, be attentive to my words. Put them on your fingertips, write them across your face, do whatever you need to do to remember to not do as I've done. He knows he's competing with his track record. He knows that the words he's speaking have to go against what his sons have seen. 700 wives, 300 concubines. So here's what I want to know, just as a little bit of a sidestep. Here's what I want you to consider. What if your kids didn't do what you said they should do, but do what you do? What if your kids don't do what you say they should do, but do what you've done? Now, you may not have kids, but you do have influence. So let's broaden the question a bit so it doesn't just apply to parents and people check out if they don't have kids. What if those within, we'll just say, your circle of influence, right? Uh, Could be children, friends, coworkers, nieces, nephews, parents, siblings, you fill in the blank. What if those within your circle of influence didn't do what you said they should do, but imitate what you do, particularly in the area of sexual purity? Solomon likely learned the hard way and was emphatically, emotionally, passionately exhorting his son to not do as he's done, but to do as he said. And there's a relational cost that comes with sexual sin that is particularly, particularly high. And last, but certainly not least, there's a spiritual cost that comes with sexual sin, with all sin, but particularly sexual sin, of grieving the Lord who loves us and has saved us. So what about you? Do you underestimate the consequences of sin? Do you think, well, I mean, I I don't want to sin. I really do want to live a life pleasing to the Lord. But hey, who among us, right? Like it's, it's a big deal, but it's kind of not that big of a deal. We, I don't want to sin. I repent when I sin, but it's always going to be a little bit. So there's a level of comfort I have with sin in my life because I'm a fallen human being, and God knows that, and I know that, and we're kind of on the same page when it comes to that. Do you underestimate the high cost, the incredible consequences that, that come with sexual sin. What, do you, what changes do you need to make in your life to show you acknowledge the high cost of sin, particularly sexual sin? 
Our next point might be one that you can do. You need to not walk, but run away from temptation. Not walk, but run away from temptation. Look at Proverbs chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. It says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. Basically, here is a young man who is at a place he should not be, at a time he should not be, doing something he should not do. He had set himself up to be tempted. I put in your outline a quote from Martin Luther where he says, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Uh, You can't help that temptation is going to come about in life, right? That's going to happen. So the word picture that Martin Luther's painting is you can't keep birds from flying over, but you can prevent them from like building nesting materials and, and hanging out there, right? There are things in life that are just going to happen while we live in this fallen world. It's not a sin to face temptation. Our own Lord was tempted, right? Luke chapter 4, he was tempted in the desert for 40 days. Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every possible way and never sinned. It's not a sin to be tempted. The question is this, what direction do you run in when temptation strikes? Do you run towards it? Do you run away from it? Or do you just kind of stand there? And so what do you mean kind of stand there? Well, perhaps you remember in Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That last fruit of the Spirit, self-control, that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in our life. It's not a muscle to flex. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in our life, but not a muscle to flex, Let me see if I can explain. One aspect of self-control is that we would be able to withstand temptation, right? We'd be able to withstand temptation. So when we're tempted, we cannot run towards it. Why? Because we have self-control, okay? And so what we do is we run in the opposite direction. We, we, We flee. So one person might be able to withstand temptation. It's okay, I'm just not going to do that. Okay, but the other things that we want to do is to flee temptation. Not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to leave here like so quickly so that I'm not further tempted. Because whatever this is, and you pick the temptation, sexual or otherwise, uh, I'm not going to allow myself to be more tempted in this direction. So far, so good, but I don't want to tempt uh, myself. So I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave right now and run in the opposite direction. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. One aspect of self-control is that we'd be able to withstand and go in the other direction. But you know what another aspect of self-control is? That we would avoid temptation. That we would avoid temptation. So it's not about like coming up before temptation and saying, you know what, I'm getting really good at withstanding temptation. I'm running every time, so I think I'm going to see it more often. Because I have such a good track record and God's given me strength so that I can do this. That's rationalizing. And when we rationalize, we make rational Lies. We stand before temptation. We stand in reality. We say, you know what? I know this is tempting and I know this is wrong, but you know what? I think I can withstand it. I think I'm pretty strong. I think I'm mature. I think, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. Like, I'm, and we're flexing our self control muscles and saying, you know what? I know this is tempting. I know it's wrong, but we kind of chest bump it and say, I, I can handle this. It's not that big of a deal. Look at someone else who's younger in the faith and be like, you know what? I couldn't even, I, when I was your age, totally couldn't do this. But I can watch this now because I'm older and 
I got self-control, so kind of a big deal. That's not what self-control is. Self-control isn't a muscle to flex. It's a fruit of the Spirit that would cause us to be wise, to flee temptation, to withstand temptation, but then also to avoid temptation altogether. God doesn't give us self-control so that we can become calloused to temptation. Our goal is not that we can withstand it all the more and say, okay, now I can let this area of temptation into my life because I can handle it. I can handle it. If it's temptation, we should avoid it. We should stand against it. We should flee it. And then the next opportunity that we have, we should say, you know what? I'm kind of seeing a pattern. I don't want to be tempted like this anymore. So the answer isn't going back to it over and over again so you build up like a callus to it. It's fleeing. And it's thinking, what changes do I need to make in my life so that this temptation doesn't come about again? So what about you? Think back to this last week. How did you respond the last time you were tempted, sexual or otherwise? Did you make a a conscious effort to flee? Or do you, like, do you have to let it linger? Do you give sin time and space in your life it should just, quite frankly, never have? What do you do when faced with temptation? Do you think the goal is to be able to like, face it again? It's like, hit me again, one more time. Like, that's, do you think that's the way we're supposed to deal with temptation? Is that how you look at temptation? Because that's not self-control. Self-control and the wisdom that we read from the book of Proverbs says we need to not put ourselves in compromising situations. When we find ourselves in them, which we will, we resist, we withstand, we flee. But hopefully over time as we mature, as we walk with the Lord, we learn how to avoid compromising situations. Our goal is not to grow in a way that we can handle temptation, but run from it when we're faced with it. And avoid it when it's possible to do so, which brings me to my next point. You need to take ownership of your sexual purity. You own it. You maintain it. You guard it. Now, I'm going to say that again because as you're about to see, this is a point that I'm pretty fired up about because it's really, really on my heart for us and for our church and as people of God that we realize that You need to take ownership of your sexual purity. You own it. You maintain it. You guard it. When the Bible speaks of sexual purity, the onus, the responsibility, is always, always on the reader to take responsibility of her or his sexual purity. This can be seen in our passage today. Specifically, look at Proverbs 7, verses 24 and following. It says, And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Verse 25. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. It's pretty clear. Solomon is speaking to his sons, expecting his sons to guard their hearts and to guard their minds. Now, Earlier in the passage, he describes what he sees from his window, right? Proverbs 7, verse 6. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking 
sense. Passing along the street near a quarter, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And then later on in the passage, we read that he goes into her house. Here is the question. Why did the young man go into this woman's house? Solomon doesn't say it's because he's a dude. And sexual temptation is, hard, is a really difficult thing for, for dudes. And he just couldn't help himself because of how she was dressed and how she was acting. And he just fell victim to it because it's just a constant struggle and it's a battle. And he just, it's just so hard. Let's hug him. That's not in the text. Do you know why he went into her house? Because he was an idiot. It says he lacked sense. It says he was simple. And if he didn't walk by at this person's house and he walked by someone else's house, he probably would have walked into their house. He is responsible for his sexual purity. He owns it. He guards it. Solomon doesn't say it's because of how she was dressed or what she was doing or how she was flirting or what she was saying. He does mention all of those things, but there's not a therefore in the passage. Well, you know, in light of all this, you know what it's like. Egyptian linen, man, that stuff, hard to turn down. Doesn't say that. He mentions the circumstances. He tells it, he, he describes that it's compelling, but at no point does he say, and then this poor young man, innocent as he is, was just enraptured and couldn't help himself as if he's going, no, and being pulled into the house. I think he was like, excuse me, pardon me, coming in. Why? He lacked sense. He was simple in mind. He was not aware of what he was doing, and he was not consciously trying to resist, to flee, to fight, to avoid. He was in a place where he shouldn't be at a time he shouldn't be, but he put himself there. We're not to make a connection between what she was doing and what he did. To read that as cause and effect is to misunderstand the passage. Solomon said in verse 7 that this was a young man who was simple and who lacked sense. He doesn't blame the lady, the adulteress, who was dressed as a prostitute. He highlights the man's simplicity, his lack of sense, as the reason he went into her home. He is responsible Again, if she wasn't there, he still would have lacked common sense, been a simpleton, and likely would have stumbled at another place in time. He wasn't thinking. He doesn't get it. So when she calls him, he responds when he should have stiff-armed her because that's not his cistern to drink from. But he's not thinking along those lines. He doesn't resist, not because she was dressed a certain way or said certain things, but because he was simple. He lacked sense. And I think that whether she was wearing a bikini or a poncho, he was going to fall into sexual sin because he is simple and lacked sense. And I think if he had wisdom, if he wasn't a simpleton, and if he had an abundance of sense to know temptation and flee, she could be wearing a bikini or a poncho and he would flee either way. Now, why do I say this? Why am I harping on this point? Here's why. What we have here are two individuals who granted certainly have influence on each other. There's no question about that. But he can't shirk responsibility for his sexual sin on her words or her ways because, again, you need to take ownership of your sexual purity. You own it, you maintain it, and you guard it. 
We learn back in the Garden of Eden that God doesn't take blame shifting very lightly. Eve eats of the fruit that was forbidden. She gives it to Adam and he eats. And then God himself comes walking into the garden, looks to Adam and basically says, what's happened here? What have you done? Adam says, it wasn't me. He blames Eve. Technically, he blames God, right? It was the woman you gave me. Okay, Eve says, it was me. It was the serpent. It was the snake thing. Talking. Really weird. Do you know what God does? He pronounces judgment on all of them. He doesn't say, oh, it was all your fault. You're right. This all started with you. Bad snake. That's a bad illustration because snakes don't have hands. But he didn't just look at snake and say, oh, no, it's your fault. Look what you did. You're an agent of temptation. Curses the snake, the woman, and the man. Why? Because they're all responsible for the choices that they made even though each one of them had an effect on the other. But the one person, it's worth noting, the one person whose sin had the most massive effect on anyone was Adam, was the man. He was responsible for Eve. He and Eve were supposed to have dominion over all created things, but the ax is over Adam's head, and it was his sin that contributed to the other's sin and affects us even today. Romans 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Here's the thing. No one is responsible for your sin. No one is responsible for your righteousness except You. No one is responsible for your purity, sexual or otherwise, but you. No one. And so it concerns me a little when I'm talking with someone, young or old, and they say, well, you know what? I would have lived a life of purity today, but you know what? It's July, and I was at a red light downtown, and a lady walked right in front of me. She was wearing shorts and a tank top, and that just was the end of it for me. Hey, bro. I feel like if while waiting at an intersection, one woman crossing the street wearing summer clothes in summer is enough to send you down a spiral of sexual sin, I feel like that might be on you more than her. I can't help it. I'm stimulated visually. I can't. Yeah, I I get it. But you are responsible for your sexual purity. Don't whine about how difficult it is because of what other people do. You are responsible for your sexual purity. So I have two questions, two concerns, both of which I'll mention today, but only one of which I'll really have time to go into. But I want to at least let you know what's on my heart as I've been thinking about this in preparation for this message. My first concern is this, which is a little bit to poke the bear, but just to put it on your mind to think through it, but we can't really get into it today, so here we go. My first concern is this. I am concerned with the message I give my wife and my daughter if I tell her that as she approaches the mirror every day of life, She needs to remember that her body, the body God gave her, is a stumbling block that leads others to sin. 
I don't doubt the motive behind that reminder that's been said throughout Christian culture ad nauseum. I just feel like it needs a rebranding. Like there's got to be a different way for us to have our ladies think about modesty than to say, now remember, look at the pretty legs God gave you. That could cause somebody to sin. Now remember, look at how God has made you. That could cause someone to sin. There's got to be a better why driving women towards modesty. And it shouldn't be you need to protect the poor little boys. But like I said, I don't have time to get into that today. My second concern and primary concern for our time today is this. How self-deceived are we if we're thinking that that which defiles our hearts and minds is outside of us? See, my concern, specifically gentlemen, is that to infer that other people need to dress differently so that you can live a pure life means you think your purity or impurity is merely circumstantial. And if you think that, trust me, on a deeper level, you're not going to strive in your own life because you'll see yourself as this innocent victim of circumstances beyond your control. Well, I would live life purely, but, and I do live life purely like, like at least two, maybe three seasons out of the year, but it's summer. It's summer and there's so much skin. Stop. You've got to take responsibility for your purity. And if you have that mentality and you start, oh, we live in a sexualized culture and, oh, the media is just everywhere. And I can't walk down the street without seeing something that's just so difficult to look at. And I saw, I saw a billboard the other day and I think I saw a wrist. And you keep, you, you keep talking about that. It's rooted in Gnosticism. It's rooted in, in, in teaching that flies in the face of Scripture. We don't regard people according to the flesh. And if you have that attitude, you're going to sit back and chill. And when you stumble, you're going to say, I couldn't help myself. It was a stumbling block. Sometimes people trip over stumbling blocks. Sometimes people need to learn how to walk better. You own your sexual purity. I'm not saying other things don't have an effect. I'm not saying temptation doesn't exist. But please don't give yourself an easy way out of living holy and righteous in this area by talking about how difficult it is out there in this world. Jesus addressed this in Mark 7, in verse 15. He says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus is certainly not saying that there aren't a ton of temptations and stumbling blocks in our lives. Going back to what we said before, temptation is real. Spiritual warfare is a thing. There's no denying that. However, we'd be remiss to think that which defiles us is outside of us when our greatest enemy to us is us. It's our own flesh. It's our own sinful nature. It's our own rationalizing. Mark 7 and verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, Surely I've miscommunicated somewhere along these lines. Surely I've been misunderstood in some way, shape, or form. So let me take one little quasi-pathetic attempt to clarify what I'm not saying and what I am saying. 
I'm not saying other people we encounter don't have an effect on us. They certainly do. I'm not denying the fact that we live in an unbelievably sexualized culture. We do, and so did Jesus, but we do. I'm not saying that we should not consider others as we make decisions in every area of our life, because we should. But if we blame these things or other people's shortcomings in these areas for sexual sin, we will make the mistake of thinking our sexual purity or impurity is a matter of circumstance. And so we'll hope circumstances improve, and until they do, we'll ignore the responsibility that is ours and ours alone to live a pure and holy life. What about you? Who or what do you find yourself blaming for your sexual impurity? Have you bought into the lie that if others would just change their ways, you would be able to change yours? People just, if, if people just cared more, if people just cared more, I would. Wait, that's not what I meant to say. If people just made better choices, just thought of me for a little. You own your walk with the Lord. You own your holiness. You maintain your sexual purity. You guard it. Gentlemen, in relationships with young ladies... You are purity's guardian. You set that pace. I know it's really, it's really difficult. She's really pretty. I, I gathered that. You probably, I, I, yeah. You are purity's guardian. You own your sexual purity. And you know, you hear these things and you might think, man, he is an idiot. No, you hear these, I mean, maybe you do. You hear these things and you might think, I'm, I'm too far gone. I can make changes for the future, but do you know what, you don't know what's in my past. I would hate for you to know what's in my past. I can make changes going forward and I like the whole fresh start thing But oh my goodness, do you know how long I've lived a certain way? Do you know what I've done last summer and what I've done all these summers and how I lived my life? You don't know, bro. You don't know, Pastor Peter. This is who I am. This is what I do. I don't don't want to do this, but it's just who I've been for so long. You need to look to the only person who can set you free and keep you pure. And that's not me. That's not an accountability group. Those things might be helpful. I mean, hopefully a sermon is helpful. Hopefully an accountability group is helpful and encouraging. But you need to look to the one person who can set you free and keep you pure. And that's Jesus Christ, the Word. Jesus Christ, the Word. Do you look at Proverbs 7, how Solomon opens up? The first thing he says is what? My son, keep my what? Words. 
Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend. This will keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Solomon points his son to not, not even like before we even get into the lady, before we even get into, the, into what she's doing and, what, and, and what's going on. Just remember, you need to focus on my words. Before we look at circumstances and the fact that it was night and what she had done to her bed and she was calling to him, the first thing Solomon says is, hey, words, listen to my words, focus on my commandments, keep my teaching. Psalm 119 and verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your what? Word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Hunger is natural. If you're alive, you're hungry. Right? If you're alive, you're hungry. If you're alive, what you, you need sustenance. You will hunger after something. But you know what? Appetite is acquired. Hunger is natural, but appetite is acquired. Changing what you eat will change what you crave. And feeding on the word of God over time. Over time, consistently feeding on God's word will change what you crave. Will not make you perfect in this life. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But feeding on God's word, how much of it? Consistently, as much as you can, over time, changes what you crave. Hunger is natural, but appetite is acquired. Feeding on the word of Christ will change your desires. It will enable you to better live a life of purity to the glory of God. Look to Christ the word. Look to Christ for help. Look to Christ for freedom from bondage to this or any sin because that's the only place it can be found. Friends, you need to not buy into the lie that you are what you do. You're not. You are who you are by the mercy and grace of God. See, I think sometimes when it comes to talking about maintaining sexual purity, we sometimes fall prey to believing that, that we're nothing more than just like, like primitive animals who are going to do it like they do in the Discovery Channel, but that's simply not the case. You are not an object. You are not an animal who is just fraught with lust and passion that you have no self-control over. Every person hearing this message was created as an image bearer of Almighty God. And you have inherent dignity and value. Every person hearing this message was created as an image bearer of Almighty God with inherent dignity and value. And if you're a Christian, if you've been born from above, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, not only do you have the the value of being created in God's image, not an animal, not some wacky Darwinian thinking that we just like come out of goo and we're just these primates who just lust after things. If you are a Christian, you are more than just created in the image of God, but you've been bought with a price. 
Your body is not your own. Your life is not your own. The price has been paid in full for your sin. And you say, but it's so unbelievably difficult. I've been this way for so long. I can't imagine life being any different than I am right now. I can't even remember life ever having not been the way it is right now with this bondage that I'm, I'm just held captive to this sin. You need to look to Christ, the word, for hope, for help. He will granted he can deliver you I can't deliver you you can't deliver you but you can look to Christ and say I'm done I'm done and because of what you've done I know you can set me free I want to read to you some scriptures as we close and I just want you to hear the word of God close your eyes don't close your eyes just do something to focus as much as you can on not my words but God's word listen to what the word of God says There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
for the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, we are fallen, finite, sinful human beings who but for your grace and mercy at work in our lives, but for your sustaining us, but for your sovereign work in our lives of just holding us together and giving our hearts the beats that they make and our minds the able to think, Lord, we would all perish. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to you for Christ Jesus our Lord. Do what only you can do, Lord. Do what only you can do. Show us the areas of life in which we are in bondage and grant us freedom. Draw men and women unto yourself today, young and old. Lord, draw them unto salvation. Draw them unto sanctification. We desire to live lives that are in Christ and pleasing to Christ. We pray that you would do it for your name's sake. And that and that alone, for your glory.